Well, we're going to share this question about how do we validate or verify unity? How do we validate or verify unity? The church is to be unified. So the question that we have come up with is, well, how can we see that we actually are united? How is it clearly understood that we as a church are a united group of people? This mic is awful, isn't it? Is it as bad to you as it is to me? Okay, said we'll live with it. They'll figure something out. They'll play with it for a bit and come up with something that works. They're getting there already. Um, when we talk about this, this question of, of unity, what we're talking about is how we as a church body are able to reflect God's presence and his particular purpose in our life. Unity becomes more important than individual praise or honor or blessing. And so when Paul talks this issue about unity in Romans 12, he's trying to help us understand that life from this point on for us is about certain principles that should be pronounced clearly in our life. One is the principle of love. Another one is the principle of what I call we, W. You know, the two, two eyes on it with the we thing. And, and the last one is really the principle of, of good. And each of these principles, when you put them all three together, it becomes we love good. Can you say that with me? We love good. When we put all those together, we experience this divine unity. God brings it, and we find ourselves going, wow, this is so much better than what I thought I wanted. It's so much better than what I thought I wanted. And... As we get older, we exhibit these scars in our life from choosing those areas of unity, and they declare a transformation process. I could show you scars. How many of you have scars? You have scars? I could show you one back here. (laughs) I won't. And it's it's. I was skiing, and I was I was being really cool, and I was I was doing this thing, and I bounced off this spot, and the spot happened to have a big log that stuck out about this far. It was a frozen piece of log. And when I hit it, it went right through my thing. And I went, that didn't feel good. And I looked down and I had this hole. And now it's a scar that got covered over there. And you could see it sometime if you're really interested. (laughs) And you would say, oh, that's Lee's scar from skiing. Yeah. So we get scars that mark us and tell us about a time and a sequence and an event that took place. Unity is full of scars, is what I've discovered. When we choose to be unified, somebody ends up with a scar. Jesus is the ultimate picture. The scars that he proclaims. Declare to us his declaration for unity and peace. So if you think that you're going to get unity in the church without any scars, you're being foolish. There's a price. And that's why Paul starts off this chapter 12 with the term a living, what is it? Sacrifice. A living sacrifice. And our struggle is that we always want to crawl off the altar. See, because God says, Lee, today you're the one that's got to sacrifice. I'm going, you know, Lord, 
why don't you use Rich today? He could he could come on and I'll slide. How about how about how about you know uh, Don? How about Gary? How about D? You going sacrificial? It's it's. I don't want to be the one that sacrificed today. Unity demands a certain amount of sacrifice. It's inherent in what it is. So we develop these scars within us that become scars of transformation, of change in our life, where we get an aha moment, an awareness that God brings to us when we choose to become a living sacrifice. Someone put it this way. They said, when we handle ordinary instructions with extraordinary faith, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, a living canvas for God's transforming power to be displayed. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how that comes in. See, Romans 12 begins with a, see all that God has done for you. Look at all these miracles and mercies. Look at all this wonderful understanding and purpose. This, this glorious, glorious picture of who God is and how he loves us. And then he moves down a little bit and he begins to say, we need to use the transforming and miraculous gifts that God has given us to build a transforming and miraculous unity. So Jesus said, this is how they'll know that these are my church. The mark upon them will be the mark of my how they love one another. And love is only seen through unity. Through unity. In the midst of of struggle and question and difficulty. God affirming, God revealing, God verified unity. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Unity as it's spoken to us in Romans chapter 12. So turn to Romans 12 to me if you're not already there. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to read through our section for this day. Some of you, if you have an NIV, may say love and action on top of it as it lays it out, but I actually think this is unity in action, not love in action. Unity in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling or cleave would be better to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Might be better. Don't be high, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Instead, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. As far as it's possible with you, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take Revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it's mine to avenge. If he so chooses to, I will repay. If he so chooses to, says the Lord. Your calling is this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't 
be overcome or conquered by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Father, speak to us today, our hearts and our souls. Help us to grasp these truths in relationship to unity because as a church, we have often strayed away from it in our desire to accomplish other goals. Today, clarify to us how we can be unified, how we can declare your presence, your purpose, and your power in us. We ask that in Jesus' name, my Father. Amen. Romans 12 starts off with the principle of love. And he talks about this issue of now. Now, oftentimes people say, what's the opposite of love? What's the opposite of love? It's not hate. It's indifference. It's indifference. Someone was in a class and the guy wrote up on the board, A-P-A-T-H-Y, which for those of you that can't spell, is apathy. And he turned to the class and he says, what does that spell? And the kid in the back said, who cares? Love is indifference. Who cares? It's their problem. Who cares? Love versus indifference. If you don't love somebody, you just don't care. See, the cry of parents, the cry about my brothers, my sisters, about those that are part of my life, I care about them. I I love them. I'm willing to be involved in their life because of that fact. So, In this section, he's talking about how can we love one another. He says, first of all, your love has to be sincere. In the midst of that, it's a a hating, evil, and clinging or cleaving to what is good. So he begins this picture of a living sacrifice telling us that we're to love one another without hypocrisy or with sincerity. And this particular word here, and he uses three words for love, by the way. The first one he uses is agapeo. Agapeo, which is the word that's commonly used in the New Testament for sacrificial love. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, you guys all know that as a love chapter, right? Those of you that know the Bible well enough. 1 Corinthians 13, it's a love chapter. It's about all kinds of love. You go to a wedding, you know what you always hear? 1 Corinthians 13. It's a love chapter time. Okay, love always. We go through all, That's agapeo because it talks about serving one another. Agapeo love is always about serving one another. So the first and foremost foundational aspect of love is serving, choosing to serve one another. Without hypocrisy. It's a sacrificial word for love, which is used by Jesus and by so many of the authors within the word, primarily by uh, Paul. It's interesting, when he talks about this concept, it's love without hypocrisy or insincerity. The picture is one I think I've shared with you before. And it was in the marketplace, they would often sell these beautiful statues of Apollos and, you know, a variety of other famous Greek guys. You remember all those shots that you couldn't let your kids look at? They had the fig leaf over. You know, it was all those. It was those kind of statues all over. Well, you go to the statue to pick out your own statue marketplace, you know, the mall. And here's this beautiful statue. You go, wow, this is perfect. There's no flaws in it. It's sincere. Sincere, it means without wax. And the people would light a little torch and they'd like it, put a torch up and down this statue and they'd find out if it had wax stuffed into the holes to cover up the imperfections or not. Get the picture now? So you walk over there and you say, and this guy says, I've got this incredible statue. Michelangelo himself made this. It was just, just beautiful. And I want you to purchase it. And it doesn't have a flaw in it. It's only a half a million dollars. You're going, half a million dollars? There's not a flaw in it. And your friend says, oh, let me check that out. And he pulls out his butane lighter. 
Or it's gonna, and, it's all, and it starts melting. You go, oh, yeah, right, dude. There's all kinds of wax in that. A lot of imperfections. Paul says your love needs to be without wax. Without wax. No faking. No hypocrisy. No mask. Love them, period. Do you realize how hard that is? That is really difficult. As the Lord speaking to me a lot this week because I pray for most of you on a fairly regular basis and I talk about you too. Sometimes the talk is better than other times. And I found in the midst of that, I said, you know, Lord, I'm praying for them because I love them, but I'm not sure this love is, little, is without hypocrisy. There's a little bit in me that's a little... Would I say this if they were sitting here? Would I say, Liz, yeah. would I be telling Liz that when I'm praying for her? I went... I need to get a better handle on this, Lord. I want my love to be without hypocrisy. Hate evil. It's the word kakos is the word here. It means it's, it's like the idea of don't touch that. <gasps> it, it's, it's a picture of a disease. Okay, Something is diseased and it's contagious. And if you touch it, you'll catch that cancer. You'll catch that particular disease. And he says, hate disease, evil. Hate it because it will contaminate you. It'll contaminate you. Instead, cling or hold on to what's good. Don't touch that. Grab this. Cleave onto this. Super glue it. Make it part of who you are. Cleave to good. Agathos means it's it's a concept of good works or service. Tabitha is talked about in Acts 9, 36. It says she was a woman who was filled with charity for God and she was always going about doing good works. Everybody knew it. They said, yeah, she's always clinging to good. Always doing good works. Excelling in doing good. Now, Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Except there he gets a little clearer and he says, Your love must be from a pure heart, one that has no disease, no evil. A good or clear conscience means a tender conscience. And a sincere, same word, sincere here, no hypocrisy, faith in this case. A faith that's without, without wax. This non-hypocritical faith. See, so, and that's our Christ. So Paul says, first of all, if you want to be unified, you have to have a love that's not hypocritical. You have to have a love that's not hypocritical. And that, that can be difficult to say, Lord, you need to cleanse me from this evil that wants to reside in me and from these... Unfortunately, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to want my way. Eh? I see it as, well, I hear what you're saying, but I think I'm more right than you are. And we laugh about it, but I really feel that way. And I have to work with it. I have to go, you know, Lord, am I being hypocritical? And oftentimes people say, you know, Pastor, you, you will... Um, I'll share with you something, and at first you kind of hold off, and then you'll come back later and say, okay, let's go ahead and go with that. And they'll say, and I so appreciate that. And I said, well, yeah, because my first response is usually a hypocritical response. I don't want to do that. I didn't come with that idea. My ideas are good ideas. Your ideas are okay. You get that? Don't, that's the way life is. That's how, so we have to struggle against that and say, no, where love is to be without hypocrisy. No talking behind the backs. But as if they were right there, you pray for them the same way, you talk about them in the same way as if they're standing in front of you. And we talk and we pray that way without hypocrisy. And if you guys have been talking behind your back about me, 
Some of you have. I know, because I'm some of your talk. You need to repent. <laughs> Probably do, you know. I repented this week. Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. Stop. 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 No hypocrisy in our love. Okay? Agape love. We say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to hold myself accountable. Is your spouse sitting next to you? If your spouse sitting next to you, this is what I want you to say. I want to, to love without hypocrisy. Turn to your spouse, say to one another, I want to love without hypocrisy. Or your friend that's close by. Friends work. Okay? They're going to hold you accountable to that. So next time you hear them say something that's wrong, say, hold it, we don't do that. Huh? That'll help so much. Even though at first we'll kind of go, whoa, whoa, and I'll say, yeah, you're right. If we do it early, it's really good. It's, it's, it's when it's 15 minutes down the line that it's not good. Just do it early, grab it. Okay, agape love, but that's not enough for unity. Then he goes on to say, be devoted to one another in love. And the words actually here are, love one another in love. Love one another in love. It's translated, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourself. Now, what he's saying here is that we are to love like parents and like brothers and sisters. Both. The first word where it says be devoted is the word that's usually translated storche, which means a parent's love. A parent's love. So it's devotion. Get that picture? Parents are devoted to their children. Boy, have I experienced that in my life. I'm devoted to my children. Sometimes I'm, I'm irritated by it. Sometimes, you know, my, my wife and I, we talk about she, she's devoted to her children. And sometimes I, we're even devoted to our grandchildren. Sometimes it's like, I want a little more of that devotion. Yeah? Can I get a little devotion? I'm jealous of the time and effort. And, but we're, we're devoted. So it's a parental love, then with parental love and brotherly love. The second word here uh, is, is the brotherly love. Phileo is the word that we use. And we get Philadelphia from that, city of brotherly love. Yeah, right. Okay, but anyway, that's the, where the word comes from. So you get this picture of love like a parent and a brother and sister. Choose to love. In fact, make a choice to honor them. To honor them above others. And the word here, to honor, means to put them first. In other words, we, we say first, hey, I want to tell you what they just did. Do you see parents do that? My son, can you believe what he did? He's like, he's, he's, he's the most incredible. I mean, he's got a quarterback. Why isn't he starting? We're devoted to them. We, no, forget the coach. I think he's devoted to the other guy. You know, that's the picture. Devoted to one another in love. Put them first. Okay, put them first and then hold on tight. Never be lacking in zeal, he says, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And this is the picture of passion in our love one for another, serving God in that passion. Serving God in that passion. That's a, that's a correct understanding. So we serve God in the midst of our passion, our love for one another. Love, love, love. Love with sacrifice. Love like a brother. Love like a mom and a dad. Choose to love one another. Then he says this, when you choose to do this, You'll find yourself experiencing unity in the midst of struggle and difficulty. He says, God will pray, fill you with praise and with patience and with persistence. So he says it this way. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, persistent in prayer. Joyful in our hope. We look forward to what's going to take place. We're joyful in our hope. We know some good things are going to happen. We look forward to it. I'm going, this is so exciting. I wonder how God's going to do this. 
in the midst of our love for our brothers and our sisters. I wonder how God's going to pull this off. This is going to be exciting. We're patient in our affliction. He didn't say be joyful in our affliction. Those of you who are joyful in affliction, I'm sorry for you. I don't like being beat. I don't know about you. I don't like being sick. I don't enjoy affliction when people are mad at me and I've got to deal with these. It's, I don't enjoy that. God doesn't ask me to enjoy it. He says be patient in it. Be patient in it. Be a patient in your affliction. Let the healing start. Let it continue. Let it finish. Okay? And then, then he says, and be persistent in your prayers. Over and over, every morning, pray, pray. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Persistent in your prayers and your love one for another. Persistent, persistent, persistent. And, and this, this picture of patience and, and praising and persistence is, is love exemplified one to another. See, that's what parents do. We're patient in our affliction. When are they ever going to get it? Eh? Oh, it's, it's terrible. It's awful affliction. Those of you who aren't parents don't get it. Oh, it's awful. It's, I'd much rather have it happen to me. It's awful to watch my kids not get it together. It's, it's dying. Persistent in prayer, Lord, every single day. Every day, in a, every day, every day. But we're to rejoice in hope. God's going to do something. Okay, okay. And we watch great things happen. We go, yes. And that's the midst of the church itself as well. We've watched God do his work in churches. It unifies it together in love. So we love without hypocrisy. That's the first principle of unity. Love without hypocrisy. All these three ingredients of love. We never quit. We keep at it. We focus on it. We're praise. We're persistent. We're patient. And that's the power of love in unity. It's the power of love in unity. But love in itself of alone will not bring unity. That's why Paul moves to the next thing. He says that's not enough though. That's a great beginning, but it's not enough. You have to have the power of love. You also have to understand the principle of we. The principle of we. And the we here is spelled W-I-I. Did you catch that? If you know the story, Nintendo, when they put together that particular the Wii uh, product, this product is one that's not done by one person. It's done with two. And so the Wii is two people. Those are, those are two people. See them stand up? That's a head and a head and a body and a body. That's what the I.I. is. And that's what they intended for you to see. That's why it was a weird Wii. It's a weird looking Wii, but that's how you go. I thought it was why. No, it's Wii. Two people. Wii. See, you go, oh, that's what they... And they say, this is what we're trying to say. You need to learn how to play together. And that's the principle that God teaches us here. We need to learn how to play together. If we're going to be unified, then we has to be more important. I've said this many times. We has to be more important than what? Me. We has to be more important than me, or it won't happen. I guarantee you, I always want something you don't. Anytime you come to me for something, I lose something. If I give you something, I lose something. We's got to be more important than me. You may not even get it when it's happening, but it's happening. And that's the cry of unity. We must be more important than me. And he works through different sets of people each time. He says, share, first of all, with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. When was the last time you had somebody over who was in need and you gave them, you had them with dinner? You came over and you fed them dinner and you spent some time with them. Maybe they had a glass of wine if they don't have alcohol issues. Otherwise, they had iced tea. It's great. A good time. 
When's the last time you did that? Just, just in your head, when's the last time you did that? I want you to do that this week. Okay? That's your homework. This week, invite somebody over that you haven't invited before. Not me. Okay? Don't do me. Actually, my wife has gone all this week, so you can do me. She leaves on Monday, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Nah, I'm too easy. You need to get a family, okay? That's the work, baby. We get them over. It's like three kids and two adults. Oh, boy. Hospitality. That's what it, Practice hospitality. Have somebody over. We, we rarely do that anymore. It's a, we've, we've lost it. And in the midst of that, we lose unity. So that's your homework. That's, that's one area of homework. You say, I think I'm going to take that one on. That's great. Someone's got a need. Practice it. Figure that name out. It's going to come in your head right now anyway. Second set of people and responses are your enemies. This is in relationship to your enemies. First set is kind of your church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Hopefully that's not your church. Um, so <laughs> this and I thought Nelson Mandela, what, boy, what a prime picture of it. 27 years in prison trying to overcome racial segregation in South Africa, apartheid. Now, regardless of what you think of him, when he was released, he immediately cried out for two things, forgiveness and unity rather than crying out for the heads of those who had kept him in prison for so long. No, we need forgiveness. We need unity. When he was asked, how, I could, how you, could you forgive these people who imprisoned you wrongly all this time? And he said, resentment's like a glass of poison that we drink. And then we sit and we wait for the other person to die. Ah. She said, in reality, it only ends up killing the person who takes the drink. Uh, someone else has said that forgive somebody is to set the prisoner free, to let a prisoner free, only to find out the prisoner was you. The prisoner was you. Our resentment were the bars of our prison cell. And those of you who are older have experienced that. But it's a hard thing to grab a hold of. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Bless them. Thirdly, third set of people, friends. Friends were to be involved with harmony and humility. So this third set of people and responses is harmony and humility. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Is it harder to rejoice with someone who's rejoicing or to mourn with somebody who's mourning? Most people, it's easier to mourn with people who are mourning. It's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know why? Because I didn't get it. I'm really happy for you. I'd be even happy for you if I'd gotten a million dollars too. You get any idea? It's like, ah, oh, Lord, why not me? It's just, it's, it's, we do a pretty good job of putting it it's down around the leg area. You know, it's not, it's not way up here. It's not way down here. It's just, it's just kind of, and so that's the struggle. He just says, no, rejoice with those who rejoice. Yeah. You know why you, many of you love my wife and my daughter, Danielle. Do you know why? Let me tell you why. They rejoice with you when you rejoice. I can't even do it very well. I try. You know, I get this gift. Oh, wow, this is so exciting. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's that's about as good as I get. They jump up and down. Oh, I love it. And I go, man, I'm going to go buy her something else. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. 
gain harmony. You see, that's what harmony is. Harmony is able to fit in with the highs and the lows. We laugh and we mourn together. I go to funerals and weddings. I'm oftentimes leading both of those. When I go to weddings, I have fun. When I go to funerals, I learn things. It's the nature of the two. Learn to mourn and to laugh, to rejoice together. High and low. The the idea of humility, he says, continues on with that one. He says, don't just be proud or high. The word for proud here is actually high. But be willing to associate with people who are low. Don't be conceited. Don't be wise in your own eyes, puppy eyes, you know, whatever it is. Bubble eyes, I think it was. Uh, Mary shared with me a short book called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Yeah, I forgot exactly. It's an excellent short book. It's, it's, just, it's really more of a sermon than anything else. And he does an excellent job of helping us understand a few things. One is that he reminds us that the idea of high or low self-esteem is not an idea that God provides. That's come from our culture and it's false. God calls us to humility. You see, low self-esteem means we're unhappy with ourselves. We have no confidence. And high self-esteem means we're proud of ourselves. Neither is promoted by God. We're not to be proud or conceited. We're not to think less of myself. I'm to think less about myself. There's a big difference. I don't think less of myself. I think less about myself. And that's when life begins to make sense. Thinking less about ourself and more about others. We're to bring those who are lower up. That's why he says, you who are higher, go down and lift up those who are low and bring them up to you. Have dinner with them. Encourage them. Don't be conceited. Focus on yourself. You see, Jesus was the ultimate picture of the one who came down from heaven to lift us up to be with him. And that is humility. I'm a football guy. Football's getting ready. Okay? Preseason is already going on. It's pretty funny. But it's already going on. But there's, there's, I always love stories about together guys in football. My uh, brother-in-law, Russ, always talks about how few of them there are. He's a scout for the Falcons. He's been involved in preseason. He said, man, these football players are mixed up and messed up. But every now and then you get someone who's kind of like the cream of the crop. And I was uh, listening to this with my son the other day. And I don't know if any of you know about J.J. Watt. He's a defensive, uh, top defensive player for the Houston Texans. Incredible, marvelous guy. And one story talks about how he became aware of a young man who was being bullied uh, because he had some issues uh, with, with his body. He loved playing football, but he wasn't very skilled. And he found out about it. And so he went, met with a kid, took him out and played with him for a while. And they went to school with him. And came to the guy that's bullying him and says, this is my friend. He's my good friend. You mess with him, you're messing with me. The guy goes, oh. And he walked around with him the whole day saying, this is my friend. You guys probably want to be friends with him because if you're friends with him, you're friends with me. He went from the high to the low, but he even did something better. Let's watch this clip and find out. July 2nd, 2011. Lubbock, Texas. 
The Barry family of five is driving home from their summer vacation when they're hit head-on by a distracted driver. The two boys are paralyzed. The little girl's bones are broken. And then an aunt delivers the darkest kind of news. We just told them each separately that um, mom and dad didn't make it. Thirteen days later, into that hospital room of three suddenly orphaned kids came a very big surprise. A six-foot-five surprise, to be exact. Did you walk him in? So I was like, like shocked. I couldn't take a smile off my face. I wanted to do anything that I could uh, to help put a smile on their face for two seconds. Even. When I first met him, I could tell that he was like, he liked to give and he cared like, not just about himself, but like for other people. Peter pulled out his iPad and he said, here, put your number in my iPad so we can text you. It's just kind of a relationship built from that. Pin your fingers on mine. You're getting there. Sunday. Keep eating your vegetables, right? There are two things that are very hard to stop in Houston. J.J. Watt on a rush and the Barry kids. Together, they shoot hoops, play cards, make music, lift things, get tricky, go deep, stretch boundaries, and stretch minds. Is he more kid or adult? He can be both. We've been friends ever since, and so coming over here always kind of puts a smile on my face, and it's great seeing them. But you come over here and you stay. <laughs> we hang out. I mean, they're just like friends of mine. To the Barry's aunt and uncle, who had two kids one day and five the next, J.J. Watt has been better than a busload of nannies. Did you know who J.J. Watt was? I had no idea. <laughs> For the first 14 months, 15 months, we were just trying to literally get through the day. And I was so grateful for this JJ because it gave the boys such a smile. The boys talked about JJ, JJ just sent me a text, I need to text JJ, JJ's about to call me. There was a lot of JJ. He's just an amazing, amazing person. You talk about sacrifice? Sacrifice is a 295 pound country music fan taking a bunch of kids to a Justin Bieber concert. How you doing? Good to see you. How What's you been the best day Good. you've had since the accident? Probably ditching school and going to the Texans practice. I have two of JJ Watt's shoes. This is one of them. He actually wore this in a game. If you look from the bottom, it looks like a giant. So how do you think of him? He's kind of like an older brother. Especially if your older brother happens to like sending you personal messages through your TV set. My game against Jacksonville, they said they were going to be watching the game, so we were talking about a signal that I can give so they knew um, that it was for them. And we were thinking of dances, and he's like, well, I just came to your basketball practice, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'll do the wheelchair dance and then salute. It was awesome. Like, in front of the whole country, that's awesome. Like, it was huge. One, two, three, In return... Peter did something for JJ. I want to read you this thing that Peter wrote. It was a class assignment about someone who's influenced their lives. He says, one person who influences me the most is JJ Watt. He teaches you to never give up. He teaches you that no matter how famous or wealthy you are, everybody is equal. I always wear his bracelet that says um, DBWH, dream big and work hard. He is the best defensive player in the NFL because he never gives up. I agree you should always work hard. 
That's unbelievable. Oh. That'll get you. That, that'll get you going. Um, to hear that, that I've had even a little impact on their lives is, is pretty crazy. And it's, it's awesome and uh, that's something I'll cherish forever. Those of you who are high choose to come down to those who are low. That was actually a neighbor of J.J. Watts. That's how he found out about the situation. When he heard about it, he immediately responded. And God began to use him in a very powerful manner following that as he responded and yielded to him. When we talk about unity, you see, we're talking about not just love, but we're talking about choosing to be we, choosing to get involved and make a difference in other people's lives. So unity is verified when we choose to love one another without masks, and we seek to build we, not me, uh, in our relationships. Uh, now, there's one other element in this concept of unity, and that's the element of good, or the principle of good. And that's the last one that Paul lays out here. He talks about you need to seek good, not evil. And the world that Paul lived in, the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was considered very merciful. In that world, if you took out somebody's eye, they would take out both of your eyes. That was an appropriate response. If they stole your horse, you would kill them and steal two of their horses. You see, mercy was the concept or idea of only getting back what had been done to you. But as God's representative, we're not called to seek justice. We're to follow goodness and mercy just as it follows us. We're to repay evil with good, to love in the face of hatred. And so Paul exhorts us as sinners who've been saved by grace, as sons and daughters of the living God, to choose to hate evil and cling to goodness, to choose not to repay anyone evil for evil, but instead do what is right in the eyes of everyone. We choose good not evil. As far as possible with you, live at peace with everyone. And not peace at any price, but peace at the right price. And that's why he moves to the next issue of response to those who choose to, not to seek peace, but instead war. He says, don't take revenge. Leave room for God. He's the one who will choose to avenge or not. He's the one who will choose to repay or not. For you, though... What you're supposed to do is simple. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this picture of burning coals on his head, I thought, well, I don't mind heaping burning coals on the head of my enemy. I'm okay with that. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, let him have the heat. You've got to bring it to him. And I said, now, obviously, you know, you're going, no, nah, that's not in the context, Lee. The context doesn't seem to work that way. Well, the, the first reference to burning coals of fire, you'll actually find in Leviticus chapter 16. It's where God instructs Moses on the rituals concerning the altar. To make atonement for the people, Aaron was to take a censer full of burning coals of fire, bring it for the, before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the coal with incense, causing a cloud to rise up and cover the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. 
And this sacrifice would take care of the sin that the person had been involved with before and they would receive forgiveness. Isaiah 6, 5. You remember that story. It's, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. My sin has undone me. And an angel flies to him, has in his hand a coal of fire from the altar. I'm always going, okay. And he presses it on his lips. I'm like, oh, the Lord's burning them up. Oh, this is, this is pretty, what's going on? But he says, after it touches his lips, his inequity is taken away and my sin is purged. So bringing coals of fire is the purpose of cleansing people from sin. It's the idea of Job praying for those who had sinned against him so they might receive forgiveness from God. So to heap burning coals of fire on someone's head is to bring them to repentance so that their sin might be forgiven. When someone sins against us, it's not vengeance we're to seek, but we're to seek to overcome evil with good deeds that will cause our enemy to become ashamed and burn his conscience, filling him with godly sorrow that leads him to repentance and salvation. So when someone insults us or offends us, and we want to retaliate or strike back so they'll get what they deserve, no, 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 you're supposed to bake them a cake. Well, not me. My wife could bake them a cake. I could give them an in-and-out gift card. You respond to them in love, yearning with concern for their soul so they might respond to God and receive forgiveness from Him and experience the relationship that we're called to be ambassadors concerning. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with what? Good. You see, we love good. Let's watch this final clip that I think encapsulates a bit this concept or idea. It's from a show talking about Africans and how they respond to evil. What are you not telling me? What are you accusing me of? How do you feel about Zawani? Never mind, I don't care for him. I feel disappointment. That's a lover's word. What about rage? Of all the people that I've looked into since the thing started, the one with the darkest Zuwani history is you. It was his landmines that killed you. Shh. We don't name the dead. Everyone who loses somebody wants revenge on someone on God if they can't find anyone else. But in Africa, in Matopo, the coup believe that the only way to end grief is to save a life. If someone is murdered, a year of mourning ends with a ritual that we call the drowning mantra. As an all-night party beside a river at dawn, the killer is put in a boat, he's taken out on the water, and he's dropped, he's bound so that he can't swim. The family of the dead then has to make a choice. They can let him drown or they can swim out and save him. The coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown, 
They'll have justice, but spend the rest of their lives in mourning. But if they save him, if they admit that life isn't always just, that very act can take away their sorrow. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. How do we respond to those around us? I guarantee you, I want the worship team to come up. I want to respond with, I'm right, you're wrong. I want to respond with, I'm going to straighten you out. I want to respond with, you're a jerk. I have all these responses. They're, they're my normal response. Just this week something happened. And I was sent a letter, and the, and the letter said, um, I, I won't get into it. So on something I thought, they're totally out of line. So I wrote, and they said, write back. So I wrote back, and basically I said, you guys are jerks. What is wrong with you? You need to straighten up. This is a poor statement. And I began, they even went lawyer, and got done. My wife looked at me, and she said, maybe I should bake a cake. So I threw it into the trash can, the letter, my letter of response. We love good. You see, that's the church. And that's unity verified. People come in and begin to recognize that what we're about is loving one another Focusing on we, not me. And choosing good, not evil. We're going to close with this song. We're going to do about a verse and we're going to take the offering. Whatever you have set aside for the Lord, you can put that in then. Put down your prayer requests.